I'm, I'm switched on. Are you switched on? I think you should be. Come on, are you switched on? Yeah! Come on. This is such a thrill, Rick, to be here with you, with the Vineyard Churches. I think mainly Vineyard Churches. There may be a few strangers or others here, but um, it's, it, it is so wonderful. Uh, Rick was a student in my Doctor of Ministry course. We, we try to figure it out. We're at the stage in life. We're at the stage in life. We've gone get years in, in the proper places. I think it's about four years ago. So, and I, uh, we've been anticipating this event for, I think, several years, two years at least. And finally, it is here. And I am so very pleased to be with you. I knew John Wimber. He came to Fuller often uh, with Peter Wagner and taught there. And it's been wonderful to see his legacy uh, spread around the world. Uh, I believe there are some South Africans here. Are there? Because I, I, please uh, confess. Raise your hand. One, two. Only two? I was expecting a lot more than that. But um, uh, welcome to, to all of you. Angenaam Kennis and all the Bayakutas. It's, 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 it's so good. I, I left South Africa 36 years ago to go to Fuller uh, to join the, the faculty, the seminary faculty there. The School of Psychology had only, while I'm talking, I'm going to get this uh, PowerPoint going. The School of Psychology had only been founded for a couple of years uh, when I I got there, and I, I went there intentionally. I, I moved across the world, packed up my wife and my three little girls, abandoned all friends and family, and to go to be at Fuller for one reason only, and that was to be able to do my psychology in a seminary setting. Uh, and, and it has been a wonderful time for me. There will no doubt be little stories I will be sharing from time to time about that journey. Um, but uh, just a few uh, opening comments and, and remarks. The, the theme uh, is thriving well. Thriving in your life's calling. And essentially, I, I'm going to be talking about some of the ways in which we can enhance the chances of thriving well. Or I, I prefer, or I, I equally think it's important uh, to talk about the whole area of finishing well. You, you, you don't finish well if you don't thrive well. So they are related. But Scripture has more to say about finishing well than thriving well. And, and, and so that, that is my focus. There are a few sort of uh, introductory things I need to say. First thing I want to say is you, you need to know that I have a love-hate relationship with PowerPoint. Not that I'm not technically minded. I am pretty technically sophisticated. I built my first computer in 1976, <laughs> and I had a computer long before any of you have had a computer. But I, hate, I have a love-hate relationship with PowerPoint. I love the outlines I can prepare in PowerPoint, but I hate it because everybody's going to be staring at those two pictures on the side there and not looking at me. <laughs> and, and that's not fair. Okay. So if at, if at a certain point I suddenly say bye-bye, I can bring it back again, but uh, it means I want you to come and focus here. Um, I, I'm not guaranteeing that I'm going to follow the outline exactly as you have it, but I will try to keep you on track. You have an outline, um, just a one-page outline, that has the main points I want to share in this afternoon session today. And I want to talk about the, the, the keys. What are the critical things that you as a Christian believer, you as a Christian leader, you as a pastor or spouse, 
needs to be considering in your life so that you can finish well. This topic has become a passion for me. I'm at that stage in life, you know, where I can see the end of the tunnel. <laughs> or should I say the beginning of the dark tunnel down there. I'm, my wife and I are very realistic about the fact that we're not going to live forever. Every day we get up and the first thing we pray together. Thank you, Lord, for another day that you've given us. But as I get to the end of my life's journey, the question becomes a bigger and bigger one for me. Am I going to finish well? And I, I had someone say to me recently, well, you know, why at your stage in your life are you so concerned about that? I mean, you've lived long enough now to feel like you've done pretty well. Do you know when the most dangerous point comes in your life when you could fail to finish well? Do you know when it is? When is the most likely point that you're not going to finish that marathon race? It's just before you get to the finishing line. That's the most dangerous place of all. And so I have become more vigilant in my life. Not less so as I get to the end of the road. Not less so, more so. Because, you know, Satan is there, and I tell you, right before the finishing line, out goes his foot, down you go. So I've become very passionate about this topic, finishing well. Um, now, just some introductory remarks. We probably will take a short break one hour from now because we're going to go to 4.30 and I know that's a long time to have. Uh, I, I know you'll be better off if you just have a short breather, a little opportunity to take in a deep breath. And so we'll take a short potty break, whatever, at about, about one hour from now and then continue through the second session. Um, <clears throat> that's the first thing. Second thing I want to say is that there are many here with different callings. Mostly these days I do pastors' seminars. I leave one week from after, after getting home, I leave for Australia to do seminars there, and I'll be back a week, and then I go to Hawaii, do seminars there, and later on in the year I'll go back to Australia again. <clears throat> and and uh, how many pastors are here? I, I would be very interested to know. We have quite a few pastors, thank you. And I... <clears throat> And if, if it, at any point I appear to be addressing myself to pastors, please understand that uh, it's because I have a special passion for their finishing well. And uh, what, I'm, what I'm going to be talking about really cuts across all of your lives. I, whether you're a pastor, a Christian leader, or just a devout a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to focus on the essentials, the essentials for thriving in, in, in your calling in your walk with God. But I want to acknowledge the pastors who are here and every now and again I'm going to say something very, very specifically to them and to their spouses. I hope I'll be challenging a lot of your myths and misconceptions. If I'm not, then I am failing. As I shared with Rick this morning when we met for a little while, and he knows me pretty well. I'm at that stage in life where I don't care two hoots what you think about me. So let's get that off the agenda. I really don't care. I'm going to say what I believe God wants me to say. And I'm one of those upfront, forthright sort of people. Because life isn't long enough to beat around the bush. So if, if I tramp on a few toes, I'm sorry, I apologize for doing that. But um, if, if what I say doesn't quite fit where your myths and misconceptions are, please, would you do one thing for me? And that is, give it some consideration. Just listen to it. Hear me out. See where I'm going. 
I hope we'll have some discussion time. We'll try to open up uh, some question time toward the end. It'll be difficult to take questions while I'm speaking with a big crowd and if it's going to be bigger than this this evening. But um, I'm hoping I can get stop a little short and then we'll take some questions and, and comments. Um, I bring some very unique skills so that at least you should know what, what I bring to the table. I love Jesus. Now, I never make an apology for that. I'm at the stage in life where I love God more now than I have ever in my life before. My wife and I have been married for 52 years. We married very young. <laughs> Just in case you're guessing. They're going to think, I wonder how old he is, I wonder how old he is. I'll save that to the end, okay? My wife and I have been married 52 years and we love each other more now than we have ever in our lives. I feel like I know that finally, finally in my life I really know who God is. A lot of people worship God. But not a lot of people really come to know him for who he really is. I feel like I can, I can feel his pulse. I, I can feel when his pulse beats a little faster and when, when it slows down. Uh, it, it feel, I, feel, I feel like I can look into his eyes and I can see when he's sad and when he's joyful. In a crisis situation, yeah, I, I just know how God would respond to that. Right now, I'm, I'm hurting a little bit with my family and others in the United States over this terrible tragedy with those students. My grandchildren, I have nine grandchildren, many of them in the teen years. My oldest is 23 and, and uh, talking to my wife this morning, uh, well, not this morning, she, would, she was sleeping, but late last night, uh, she says, they've all been impacted there. All my grandkids are really, they're upset. They don't know what to make of it. They're not used to this sort of catastrophe. You know, do I go, do I go to my college now? Do I, you know, my 19-year-old my, my granddaughter has to drive 20 miles to her college. She doesn't know whether I should go to my college. Because you never know whether, whether some copycat idiot is going to come and do. It, it really has impacted the American psyche. Let me just share that with you. This is uh, a traumatic thing. And so I feel, I feel some pain for that. But, but, but I, I, I think, I, I, I just have this strong feeling. I know, I know what God is feeling too. I've learnt my lessons. And finishing well is all about learning the lessons, folks. It's all about getting the lesson. It's all about it. Yeah, for a reason. And you've got to learn the lessons that life has to offer. I don't know why it is necessary to go through the pain of this life in order to get to the glory of heaven. I don't understand that. I'm going to put this on the top of my list when I get to God. And I, know I've, I may have said this in class at Rick. I got my long list of questions for God. And top of them, why, why, why this? So we can get that. And I hear the voice deep inside me come back and say, my child, trust me. Trust me. So to those who are hurting in the United States, to my family, my grandchildren, others, I say, trust God. Trust Him. Let me also say, 
in, in the skills that I bring, that in addition to loving God, I, I'm primarily a psychologist, a clinical psychologist, but I have developed certain special skills. I'm psychophysiologist. I also know my neuropsychology. <clears throat> and, and then I'm board certified in psychotropic medication, so I know all about how to use medications uh, for psychiatric and other emotional problems. So I'm, I'm, I'm a good resource person, so come and, come and chat if you need to. I hope that these skills that God would use in your lives as you've come here focusing on that issue, you know, how do I thrive? Not how do I just get through to the other side. That is not what God intends. It's how do I thrive. And, and I want to read a verse of scripture uh, from Second Corinthians. And I'm going to focus a lot of my scripture. But, but at, at this point I just want you to know that, that, uh, that, that God does not expect us just to survive. He wants us to thrive in Second in Corinthians chapter 4 verse Verse 8, we'll come back to the earlier portion, but but at verse 8 where Paul is describing some of the the, the hardness of this this life and this lesson learning journey. We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. So thriving is what we are called to. My research has taken me in, in various directions, and um, generally the, the general area that my research is focused on as a professor is the whole area of stress. Stress. When I started in, in this field 37 years, 38 years ago, I was a civil engineer before, by the way, so I brought a whole other career with me. I'm a classic... Uh, two-career sort of person, you know. I, 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 I cut my teeth on engineering and then became a clinical psychologist. But, it, but my, my research has taken me into stress and as the years have rolled by, stress has become increasingly a bigger and, and more significant problem. So we, I can't avoid it. This weekend is going to be meaningful to you and I hope it will change your life. I hope so. I pray so. If it is going to be effective, then we're going to have to confront the, st the stress problem right up front. And, be, and, and I don't want this to be a theoretical thing. I, I want to be practical. I want to give you some real practical ideas and suggestions. But... But stress, stress now is the primary cause of depression. Let me say it again. Stress is the primary cause of depression. Have you any idea how epidemic depression is? I haven't seen statistics from the United States. Let me apologize right up front. I, I, I hate quoting American stuff all the time. How many Americans are here? Uh, can I see any? One. Good. I, I know he won't be offended by anything I say, but I, I'm very conscious of the fact that, you know, when I travel around the world and I, I'm, I, I'm in many, many places, one of the things they don't like is for you to shove the American experience down their throats, okay? And I don't want to do that. But I haven't been able to get adequate statistics about the UK. But I can tell you, whatever I'm going to say to you about the statistics that come from the United States, it's just as bad here as it is there. Because I know it's just as bad in Australia and South Africa and Singapore and Hong Kong and Switzerland and Germany and Norway and Sweden and New Zealand. I know it's as bad there as it is anywhere else. So let me just give you some idea of how bad it is. Depression is now so epidemic. Seven years ago, I spoke at a conference in Toronto, Canada, to a pastor's <coughs> group. It's, it's, it's something they, uh, they hold every seven years. There were seven and a half thousand there. I, I mean, there's just a wall of pastors. And I said to that group, the, the 
Incidence of clinical depression now is 1 in 10. So we have 7,500. That means 750 of you are clinically depressed. And there was a gasp. I could have filled three hospitals. <laughs> Just for that group. On Tuesday evening, I, I held a little... Uh, alumni gathering for graduates from Fuller in Hoppington. And a number of our alum, alums came there. And two of them were at that conference I spoke at in Toronto. And they remember very clearly how stunning it was to look at that audience and realize we've got 750 clinical depressed people. That was seven years ago. Today, it's not one in ten, it's one in six. It's one in six. So that means we've, it's jumped from 750 now to about 1,200 in that group. Women, twice the rate of men. So women now are running about one in four with clinical depression. Now they don't all know it and they don't all get help for it. Teenagers, the most dramatic increase. It's now one in four. It was last year. It's probably one in three now. I know, I've got eight grandchildren. Three of them clinically depressed. Right on target. And, and we can add anxiety and anxiety problems. I wasn't, anxiety is not on my agenda, but I've talked to a couple of people ahead of time and they're asking me questions about anxiety. So tomorrow I'm devoting the morning and afternoon session to the problem of depression and anxiety. You're not going to thrive if you don't get on top of this depression stuff. And it's epidemic. And it's stress-related. So that, you know, can't avoid that. We just have to address the depression and, and the anxiety problem. <clears throat> and, uh, and then I'm going to spring off on a, on, on, a, on, a, on a few others as well. Um, the, it, it, it's important that I lay out also at the beginning some key assumptions so you know where I am coming from. And, 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 and the first assumption that I want to lay out for you uh, is this. And in fact, if you get these three points, you've pretty well got a good start on this thriving thing. Because stress is such a serious issue today, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that because I don't know the topic. I, I, this is my field. I know the research. I know the neurology research. I know the psychiatric research. That, that, that the, the first point, I, I, a key assumption that I want to highlight for you is this. I'm I, I, approaching this problem from a Christian perspective. I have become absolutely convinced that our problem is, that my coat needs to come off because it's getting very warm, <laughs> but the problem is that we are living outside the box of God's design. When God created us, he put us in a pen. Just imagine it's a, it's a child's pen. And said, that's the box, folks. And we climbed out of the pen. And we're playing on the outside. We have, we have to live and minister and serve God within the boundaries of God's design. We cannot live outside of it. This is such a profound point, I can't understand why it hasn't been 
hammered at and drums beaten and shouted off the rooftops sooner than this. Well, I know why. I know why. Because, you see, up until just eight or ten years ago, we could probably say that most of us were still living within the box. What I will try to show you is that in the eight to t- last eight to ten years is when going outside the box has become epidemic. Because of the stress factor. And, and the, 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 the portion of scripture I keep getting drawn back to. And please excuse me, but you're going to get scripture all weekend too. I, I can't live my life uh, doing what I do without also uh, looking at what scripture has to say. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul uses a very important metaphor. In fact, if we had time, uh, he's already used six metaphors up before he gets to chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. All of them are important, and I'll, I'll go back to some of them. But this, this one is very important. He says, we have this treasure. The treasure is the gospel. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Clay pots, earthenware vessels. And that is a very important foundational principle to grasp. That God did not create us with superhuman powers. He did not give us a body that can resist everything there is that could possibly happen to us. He he created us as a vulnerable Fragile, delicate clay pots. So that, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. You see, if God had made us like the angels, there would be really little point to the whole exercise of this life and the lessons that must be learned. Very little point. Now, now let me translate this into you know, everyday life. What does it mean to, to say that? We have to live within the, 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 the boundary, within the limits of God's design. It means this. It means that you cannot expect... to be happy while you are abusing the brain's pleasure or the brain's neurochemical system. You cannot expect to be happy while you're, if you're abusing the brain's chemical system. Because our happiness requires the brain to be able to produce that in our heads, you see. You cannot expect to be joyful if you're living outside the boundary of God's design. You cannot expect to be joyful if you are abusing the brain's pleasure system or the pleasure center in the brain. This is a topic of a whole new book I've just written. It's coming out in, 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 in September called Thrill to Death. Meaning that the problem is that we are thrilling ourselves with a pursuit of pleasure in modern day hedonistic society is so profound that it is actually hijacking our brain's pleasure center. I sent a copy of my manuscript to Jack Hayford. Is Jack Hayford known in vineyard circles? He's a friend. I said, Jack, what do you think? He came back. He wrote me a half a page glowing endorsement of the book. I don't know that I've ever seen Jack do that. Then I also sent it off to Robert Schuller at the other end of the spectrum, you know, <laughs> Crystal Cathedral. Same response. We are messing with the brain's pleasure system. And then we expect to be able to feel joyful, pleasure. You cannot expect to be peaceful if you are abusing the brain's 
now tranquilizing system. God has created this brain. I, I believe that God has given us such a remarkable creation. It, it, the more I get into micro, uh, neurobiology, micro neuropsychology, the more amazed I am at the intricacy, the complexity, the huge multiple cities that are in our brain. We've got garbage collection systems. We've got communication systems, telegraph wires going around. It's, it's messages going backwards and forwards. We've got city managers taking care of controlling various things. It is a remarkable. I have sat in, I have to do continuing education every six months to maintain my board certification. And I have sat listening to some of these micro-neurologists lecture on the wonderful nature of our human brain. And tears flowing down their eyes. These are secular guys. Well, it turns out I find that several of them are Christians. But, but it, it, it's marvelous. It is absolutely wonderful. But the brain has a system, a tranquility system. And when you abuse that, it's like, you know, you, I'm going, you abuse the tranquility system of the brain, and then you go to God, and you ask him to give you his peace. You know that, that wonderful verse of scripture in, in Philippians? Um, it's a wonderful verse of scripture in Philippians about the, the peace of God. Uh, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Did you hear that? The peace of God, which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't think that there is a single person here this afternoon that even can begin to comprehend the peace that Paul is talking about. I'm sorry. I know too much about your brains. I know what's happening to my brain. I've gone and done my brain scan and all that stuff. I know that the, the level of stress that you, if you're living at all, the level of your stress is, has already undermined the tranquilizing system of your brain. You know what the most <clears throat> it, anxiety, panic anxiety disorder is now the number one mental health problem for women in the United States. Number one. It's number two for men. Number one for men, substance abuse, al addiction, alcohol. That's, for men, see, men can't tolerate the pain of that, so they go and medicate it. They go numb it. Women are stronger, more able to confront it. We have lost the peace of God. We left it behind. Not 50 years ago, so much. A few. Not 30 years ago, a few more. But about 10 years ago, something happened in our world that has significantly reduced the ability of our brain to deliver a genuine authentic, abiding sense of peace. Most of us carry around with us, and myself included, a pervasive sense of anxiety. We wake up in the morning and there's a little anxiety. About now, anxiety is normal. We were created for anxiety. But you see, it's a question of how much. We've got too much. And we, we, the problem is that we, it's stress. And just, well, I'm going to get into stress, I think, on uh, Saturday morning. But just let me say this. It, it's all about a hormone called cortisol. You may want to write that down. 
because you're going to hear a lot of it. You're already hearing a lot about it. It's one of the hormones. You know, even here in America, I was listening to the news. I always, when I come here in America, here in the United Kingdom, I, I usually try to listen to the news so I can get a quick update of what's going around. And lo and behold, one of the programs is all about ch- obesity in children, right? Is there, is there concern in this country about that? Do you know what causes that obesity? Yes, laziness and a few things. But, but the one that they keep overlooking, it cortisol. It's stress that's doing it. Our kids are under too much stress. We were, when I was a kid, we were free to eat as much food as we wanted to, but none of us were really obese. I don't recall having an obese kid in my, my class growing up as a kid. But today, every, it, it is cortisol. What cortisol does, it tells the body, this is an emergency, store the fat. And it accumulates it around the midriff. It's cortisol related. And so, a few smart Alex come up with a, a treatment for obesity. You know what it is? It's called cortislim. Do you have it here? Well, it'll come. <laughs> you see, they, they take a little bit of truth and then they distort it and they create a product that makes them rich. It's called cortisol. You take this and what it does, it shuts down your cortisol. And if you exercise and diet, then you'll lose weight. But the exercise and diet is a small prince right at the very bottom. It doesn't do anything. The only way you're going to get your cortisol down is to get the stress level down in your life. And cortisol blocks the brain's tranquilizing receptor called the GABA receptor, G-A-B-A. And cortisol gets there, blocks it, and the brain's natural tranquilizers, the peace that God has created into our brain, that he, if, if those receptors were open, God promises, I can give you that peace. And God sends that beautiful gift speeding across our brain and it reaches the GABA receptor and it looks back and says what do I do? It won't let me in and I think God's heart must hurt I put myself in God's place oh my, my word you know I'm going to give them my peace and I can't because they're living outside the box Idiots. No, no, God wouldn't say that. <laughs> God doesn't say that. But you see, I'm injecting myself in. I, I feel like how st- But you see, I, I, I feel how stupid it was. Now, what I am describing to you is a new shift in psychology and psychiatry and mental health to understanding a whole new issue here. And that is, the, the principle is, we have to cooperate with God's design in order to thrive well in whatever calling we have. Is this important? Of course it is. Of course it is. I got a letter just <clears throat> before I left, an email just before I left from a very prominent, I don't want to mention his name, but he's a very prominent uh, Christian pastor in the United States. He's only 36. His church is now just past 6,007 services on a Sunday. And you, know, you stand back and say, oh, God is blessing that work. God is blessing that man in his ministry. And in a sense, he is. The only problem is that he is on the verge of collapsing. Cortisol levels are so high his doctor is telling him, you either stop, slow down, do something. In my, in my phraseology, is get back in the box. Or it's going to be the end for you. It's not going to finish well. And, and that just leads me to, to add one little thing to this point, And that is, see, the, the, the problem is that very often this abuse is done in the name of Jesus. And my word, I wonder what that does to God's heart. I I have become very sensitive 
Maybe it's just because I'm at a stage of life where I, I feel things deeply. But, but I, I, you know, I, I can't help thinking, what does, God, what does this do to God? Do you think God doesn't have feelings? Of course he does. you think he doesn't hurt? you think he wouldn't love to just come in here and just wipe the slate clean and say, look, there's a lot of you, you haven't got it wrong. Just get off this earth. Let me bring in the angels so I can have glory from them. But, you see, this is not the end of the story. This is part of the learning. This is part of his design. Only some of us just haven't got on the right track. So, the first point I want to make is you can't live and thrive and finish well if you live outside the box, the boundaries of his design. Second point is you must not neglect the culture of the inner person. And, and here I, I, I will turn to Spurgeon, but I have a, a verse of scripture there, 2 Corinthians 4 verse uh, 16. Therefore we do not lose heart. I love that phrase. He, it, it, chapter 4 opens with, therefore we do not lose heart. Lose heart. We don't lose heart. We don't lose heart. We do finish well. Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are, being, we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed year by year. Year by year? Month by month? Come on. A week by week, right? Day by day. And that day by day renewal principle, I come back. But the culture of the inner person. This is a, a phrase that I got from Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon is a... I, I'm a great admirer of Charles Spurgeon. I assume he's well known in this country. Americans don't know him too well, but... Uh, he, I, 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 read, I go back and read Spurgeon all the time. He was the wisest man that has lived for many hundreds of years. I don't read John Calvin, quite frankly, but I read Spurgeon. He, 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 he understood this human condition. You know, I honestly believe that way back, when was he, 1850, 1860? He would have easily have said the same thing as I've said you live within the boundaries of God's design in fact I can quote Spurgeon again and again and again where he is saying the same thing only in slightly different ways when we get to depression tomorrow you'll see what I mean by that but, but, but Spurgeon was absolutely adamant you have to, you cannot neglect the culture of your inner person who you are as a person is crucial to this whole business of thriving it's all about. And that then leads me to the, the, to the third point. And uh, this is all by way of introduction, but I, I, I believe it's so important that I've taken a little time to lay this foundation out very clearly because unless you get the theology of all of this right, uh, you, you're going to go off in all sorts of tangents. So the, the, the third point I want to, uh, to emphasize <clears throat> Have, is the, is, has Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life, been well, well accepted here? Rick Warren, like <laughs> my Rick here, one of my former students. And I, I was close to Rick in the early days. We'd go and preach for him when his church was like two, three hundred people. And then a thousand, then three thousand, and then twelve thousand. Last time I preached, it was twenty-four thousand. And, and, and when he wrote the book, A Purpose Driven Life, he sent me the manuscript. Wanted to know what I thought about it. Wanted me to write a little endorsement. And in the very first edition, if you can get a copy, you'll see my name is there endorsing the book. I personally didn't think it would sell much. <laughs> but then what do I know about writing books? I, I mean... <laughs> But he hit the nail right on the head. But what is the opening words of the book, The Purpose Driven Life? Anyone remember? Anyone know? Rick knows. It's not about you. <clears throat> and I understand perfectly what that means and where Rick is coming from. It's not about you. But you know, I've come to believe that 
there's another side to that coin. And it is this. It is about you. Now, now, now I'm, I'm shifting the meaning a little bit, but the point I want to make it is about you. It's all about you. I have to often remind pastors who get the idea that they are there sort of as a go-between God and, and, and their people and, and they have to minister God to their people and it's like they're on the sideline being a coach of some sort, you know, helping people to connect with God and, and passing on God's message and, and, and they're on, but they're on the sideline or they're the referee while the fighting is going on in the ring or in any of those metaphors you want to use. I think that's a wrong understanding. And, and, and for that I turn to one of my favorite portions of scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul writes, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. The next six chapters in 2 Corinthians is, is really all about thriving. It's all about thriving. And he begins by, with these words, the, the, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received. Do you get that idea? That we don't stand on the sideline and help people connect with God. We get into the game and we get it for ourselves first. And then we pass it on to our people. That's the formula. Just this last week, and if you, if you don't get it, you should sign up for it. You, an email from Rick Warren every week, his pastors, to, and it's not only for pastors, anyone can get it. I'm not a pastor, and I get it. Um, but but there's a, this last week, he he's always has a quotation at the beginning. And last night, I, 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 I downloaded it, and the quotation, right on target. This is what he said. If I don't grow, my people don't grow. Simple, but oh boy, that's right on it. I could have substituted, if I don't thrive, my people don't thrive. Because you see, unless I get it for myself first, it's not going to go to them. I get the comfort for myself first and then I go and I pass that comfort on. And Paul has said it once, he repeats himself again. Uh, he says, we, who, uh, the God of all comfort, whose comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can com- comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. What a wonderful expression that is. If if you're a good calligrapher, write it for me, would you? And have it printed up. Overflowing comfort. Put it it above your desk, pastor, Christian leader, Christian businessman, teacher, nurse. Put it over wherever you work. Come here because it's all about comfort that overflows. See, it is about you. God doesn't look past you, Rick, at this congregation. He looks at you. It's you and me, mate. He's an Australian. He knows what I mean by mate. No, no, you use that in, <laughs> you use that expression here too. You know, it's 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 it's, it's you and me, mate. Because see, if I get it right in you, then those you lead will get it right too. It's all about me. And that's what Spurgeon was alluding to. The, what he calls the culture of the inner person: who I am, what I am becoming. It's what my work is all about. It's what your thriving 
is all about. <clears throat> um, let's now shift the focus slightly because I need to define the problem a little bit because we have a major crisis in our evangelical Christian world. I say a, a major crisis in the evangelical Christian world because I think the non-evangelical Christian world uh, <laughs> doesn't really matter much these days. I mean, it's a non-significant group, quite frankly. I, I, you know, I, I, I'm concerned about the evangelical body of Christ. And if we can't get it right, no one else is going to get it right. But there's a, it's a major crisis, and a few. I'm going to go through these comments very quickly because some of them may not apply here. Well, it's not on here, but let me just point out to you that we have had in the United States a dramatic increase in the rise of failure in the area of sexual immorality. It epidemic. Now, 22 years ago, I did some research that, that has been quoted. It's the most common quoted bit of research on pastors and so on. And it, 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 it showed then that there was a crisis in that a sexual acting out on the part of pastors was a very significant problem. This is before the, the Catholics got, you know, caught up in the pedophile scandal that's going on in the United States. But... But there was a very serious concern 22 years ago, and as a result of seminars I did and conferences I held with, with Christian leaders, uh, educating pastors and, and trying to get a better understanding of the risks that, that pastoring and, and being a Christian leader holds for you, we're able to, we saw an improvement. We saw a dramatic improvement. But about five years ago, it's all coming back again. A whole new wave. And my research now shows that it's for different reasons. The Ted Haggard incident. And does it, did that reach news here? Did you hear about that? Very respected, highly regarded pastor in Colorado Springs. Just lost it one day. Uh, and I know the, three, the four senior pastors, Jack Hayford's one of them, who have been, who've gathered around Ted's life and have tried, are working at the accountable body that will re, re, get him back on his feet again and, and see if they can salvage anything there. Um, but we have a serious problem in the sexual arena within the Christian church. And you know, it's not just pastors. It's, it's across the board. Within churches. There's a very serious problem. I, I will be devoting, I think, uh, some time to that. Uh, maybe to, I think it's tomorrow evening when I'm going to talk a little bit about the Christian's hidden addictions. The sort of stuff that's so private, you'd, we don't often get to talk about it. But, but I, I, will get, I will get to that, uh, that, that topic. But there, there is a, there's a major crisis. We, we've just had this last six months in our area, in our area, Pasadena, Los Angeles area. Six pastors of big churches, of major churches, have either resigned or been sacked. So, so there's, a lot of, there's a lot of conflict between people and pastor. Um, there's really a concern about the state of the church. Some of the things I've been talking about, you know, flow over into churches where members are angry, members are not relating well with each other. There's a lot of misunderstanding. My wife told me last night that she had a phone call. I should introduce my wife to you. Her name is Kathleen. I'll show you a picture sometime. She's my adorable wife. Uh, she was the chaplain to student wives at Fuller Seminary and for many years mentored 
the wives of Fuller students. We don't have anyone to do the husbands of Fuller students, but she did the wives. And, and then she's all retired from that and started a pastor's support group in our area. And uh, she has become quite an expert in organizing and running support groups for pastor's wives. It, it's, it's quite a remarkable thing she does. She doesn't share much with me because they try to keep it private. They have a rule and that is you are not allowed to A, identify your denomination, nor can you talk about how big your church is. <laughs> so that puts a lot of you know, small talk out of the way. But, but she provides uh, every week, she, they, she get together, she, she leads them in a devotional. She's a great Bible teacher. And then they share with each other. And invariably she comes home and she's got tears in her eyes. Um, being a spouse of a pastor is tough. It is pretty tough. And, and most of the problems have to do with the conflicts that exist between leaders and followers. Right now our, church, our churches are not doing well. And I think part of the reason is we've got so much stress going that most of us are in a situation where we're, we're, not, we're not thriving personally. We're not thriving in our own marriages. So how on earth are we going to thrive between one another? Newsweek magazine, I, I just shared this briefly this morning with, with Rick. I'm not, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but Newsweek magazine, the American version, I checked the the, the British one, that's not in there, but in the American version, there's, there's a report uh, about this Mary Winkler in the United States who recently murdered her pastor husband. Have you, you would not have heard about that. Yeah, shot him in the back with a shotgun. She's a tiny little petite, quiet reserve. And she's just lost her mind. Couldn't take any more of it. And Newsweek magazine has picked up on this and they've interviewed and, and a very favorable article in Newsweek came out yesterday. My wife shared it with me last night. Very sympathetic towards the plight of the spouses of pastors and the struggles that they go through. You know, a lot of you here are not pastors or, and, and, but I, I just want you to know that here is a group of, of our beloved who need, who need support. The, the theme in the article <clears throat> is, well, first of all, statistics show that 88%, get this, 88% of pastors' wives are clinically depressed. Recent research. Confirmed by Newsweek. 88%. That's, that's alarming. Uh, wh wh what is driving this? Isolation. The, the, the male, this is, these are males we're talking about, uh, pastors, are, are so driven, uh, to, to quote one here, to, the, uh, though Winkler's case is, to say the very least, extreme, Apparent frustrations are not. Statistics indicate that beneath the smiling, steadfast veneer of a pastor's wife, there often lies a deeply isolated woman who, due to her husband's constant commitments to the congregation, frequently feels neglected and left without a support system. That doesn't spell thriving well to me. And, and, and I, I think as, as, as members like myself and you who, who perhaps are not in ministry directly really need to take to heart carefully the, 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 the situation. They, they, they need support. And then my wife, of course, uh, you know, her whole passion these days, her, everything she does is about supporting these pastors' wives. And I hope that some of the things I'm going to be saying over the next two or three days will be helpful to them, to those of you here who maybe are, uh, are caught up with that. John Maxwell, I've got a quote there, says that pastors around the world are overwhelmed, discouraged, frustrated. Well, why doesn't he say that overstressed? Um, 
I, um, the context, ministry is tough work. Peter Drucker says that the work of pastoring is one of the three most difficult jobs in America. I, I'm continuing this theme just to, to build some empathy for those who are in full-time, and not necessarily full-time, those, many are bivocational. Some of you do this work uh, w- without any official uh, remuneration whatsoever. But, but engaging in this work is not easy. It is a challenging and a difficult task. Most are at risk for depression, disillusionment, and burnout. And moral failure now threatens the life of all Christian leaders, not just pastors, of all Christian leaders. Um, before we take a short break, let me just share a few thoughts about finishing well. Um, there's no doubt about in it, that I, I think Paul's passion, Paul had a particular passion for this notion of finishing well. We find in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, um, this wonderful expression where he, where he says these words. And I can just feel in my, in my bones the, the, the sort of underlying um, emotion that must be going along with these words. I, I, I think it's uh, Acts 20, verse 24. Uh, he, he, he writes these words, however, I consider my life worth nothing. He, he's talking about going to Jerusalem and how dangerous it's going to be. And he says, I, I, you know, it's not really, my, my life is nothing, not important to me if only I might finish the race. And I can just feel, you know, if only, oh Lord, if only I can finish the race. If only I can finish the race. And then there are those wonderful words in Second Timothy 4. That's not verse 68. You're going to have a long search to find 68th verse it is just verse 6 2 Timothy 4 verse 6 he writes I have finished the race I want to share with you a story and then we'll take a break on this theme of finishing well thriving well going the whole course I have a friend, I had a friend by the name of Dr. Ted Engstrom. Some of you may know the name. He was a close associate of Billy Graham's. They founded Youth for Christ together. Um, He became the president of World Vision International. World Vision's well known, I think. For many years was their president. And served on, by the, the, the last count was near the end of his life, he was serving on 24 boards of Christian organizations. I mean, this is one generous man in terms of his time, Ted Engstrom. And he died this past July. Had his memorial service in Lake Avenue Congregational Church, which is right in the heart of Pasadena and everyone who is anything in the Christian world was there paying tribute to this man. But, and, and when this long <coughs> memorial service was over his oldest daughter got up to share to close out. You know and after Hayford and and all the other big shots had said their thing. She, she was a little nervous because she's not a public speaker. Now, Ted and his wife, Dorothy, could not have children. They had adopted three children. She was the oldest. And she got up to share. She said, I, I want to tell you a story, she said. My father was 92 years of age. This is this past July. He was in a retirement home and I would go every day to spend time with him, take care of his needs. And I was there this, this, just a few days ago and uh, my dad was sitting in the chair and he called out to me. He said, honey, come, come here, come sit down, he said. and sat his daughter down and he said, I have 
just been going through my diary, my, my calendar book, looking at the appointments and, and things that I am scheduled, because even at 92, I can hardly walk in a, in a wheelchair. He was still going off to board meetings and, and mentoring. He mentored, I, I mentor, mentee after mentee stood up presidents of universities, Christian universities, major pastors, all said Ted Engstrom was my mentor. He, he would, all of us had got letters from Ted. You, hardly a week got by and you didn't get a letter from him. And, and most have collected those letters and kept them because they were just phenomenal. He was an encourager. He, he just, he knew how to, to sort of just give you that boost at the moment you needed it. And, and here he is looking through his calendar to see what still needs to be done. And he said, you know, honey, I don't find anything else in here. It's empty. There's nothing. There's nothing left for me to do. I think I'm ready to go home. That night, he died. What a wonderful way to go. I finished my task. Finished the race. Nothing more to do. I have finished well. And the gates of heaven can open. What a wonderful thing that is. And then... I think of the Ted Haggard story. And I want to say this. There are some of you here who probably don't feel like you're finishing well right now. Maybe you've got some real dark cloud hanging over your head. Maybe, maybe right at this moment it just doesn't look good. I want to say this to you. It ain't over till it's over. One of the things I said to the four top leaders who are helping Ted Haggard get back on his feet, please remind him this is not, the story isn't finished. You see, the wonderful thing about this finishing well for God, there's always a second chance and a third chance. And right to your last breath, it ain't over it's over hallelujah let's just close the word of prayer and we'll take a short break father gather up our thoughts right now especially take a hold of our hearts breathe into it a passion to thrive and to finish well may we become obsessed with that thought May we, in seeking to finish well, do so in a way that brings honor to your name, because we ask it in your name.